Today we're starting a three-part sermon series, Rest for the Weary, Unwrapping and Enjoying God's Gift. Thank you, Mike. Rest for the Weary, Unwrapping and Enjoying God's Gift of the Sabbath. So let's start with this question. By a show of hands, how many of you would pay $2,000 for a used pair of earplugs? Nobody. All right. Well, not long ago, the earplugs of Winston Churchill were sold for over 1,600 pounds. Winston Churchill being the famous prime minister of England during World War II. Now, it makes sense that certain items of this great man would be worth something. Maybe his pen or his desk or his watch. But why would anybody want, much less pay a lot of money for his earplugs, his used earplugs? because Winston Churchill was famous for his daily naps. Naps he began during World War I, which he maintained through World War II, when he was actually tasked with making decisions during the deadliest war in human history. The Axis forces, you know, Germany, they had overrun Europe, and they were threatening to invade England. I mean, that was imminent. Every day after lunch. While the bombs were literally dropping, Winston Churchill would retire to his private room, pop in his earplugs, and take a nap for an hour, maybe two. Churchill wrote, actually it was believed that he coined the phrase power nap, by the way. He wrote, nature has not intended mankind to work from eight in the morning until midnight without that refreshment of blessed oblivion which, even if it only lasts 20 minutes, is sufficient to renew all the vital forces. With the fate of the world, the free world, resting upon his war room decisions, Churchill knew his limits. He knew that he needed rest. He knew that he was a finite creature, that he was not God. And Churchill was not alone in taking naps. Allied leaders Dwight Eisenhower, Douglas MacArthur, they also took daily naps Unlike their nemesis, Adolf Hitler, who is known for his erratic hours, he tried to live with little to no sleep, powered by amphetamines and other drugs. Friends, the Nappers won the war and changed history for the better. Other famous Nappers who were prominent leaders impacted our world, Margaret Thatcher, JFK, Ronald Reagan, Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, I know some of you are thinking right now, wow, what a great start to a sermon series. If I happen to nod off during the service, Pastor Joel won't be upset. I'll be a wonderful sermon illustration. If I happen to nod off, friends, I won't be upset. In fact, part of me will rejoice if I see somebody napping. There should be no safer place than in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ to find rest on the Lord's day. From the beginning... God always wanted his people to know his rest in his presence. I invite you now to turn to page 5 in your bulletin or page 1 in your Bibles. But before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of the word. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you thanking you for the atonement of your Son that we can be free from all our sin and shame in Jesus Christ. We pray for the power of your spirit, I pray that, in fact, they will no longer hear the words of a mere man, but 
that they'll hear nothing less than the voice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who offers his rest. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So now here, the word of our God, page one in our Bible, Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. These are the most amazing and significant words. Not just because they start our Bibles, but particularly because we live in such a time as this. We live in a day when folks are trying to figure out who they are, right? An elementary child right now begins school and they're placed under such pressure that no child should ever be forced to bear. They're told to discover themselves. They're told to figure out their identity all on their own. Not just what career they wanted like when I was growing up. No, there's a growing list of gender identities now. There's identity confusion from the least all the way to the greatest in our culture. Our president recently said, we must place a black woman on the Supreme Court. And at the hearing, nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson was asked, can you define what a woman is? What was her answer? I can't. A most brilliant mind, unable to define a most basic identity marker that was deemed a requirement for her to get the position. Now that question was a trap set by political opponents for whom I also have many criticisms of. There's no politics from this pulpit. My point is that our culture is sliding into confusion at such a staggering rate. That is why Genesis 1 is so amazing and so helpful. Because it reveals we don't have to figure out who we are or self-create. Rather, there is a givenness, givenness to who we are because there is a creator who established that. Genesis 1 begins with these words, In the beginning, God. Do you realize what those four words are saying? When a child comes up and asks you, 
Who made God? Well, first thing you say is, great question. And then you say, the answer is, no one made God, and it's really hard to understand because we have no categories for understanding one who is uncreated. These four words declare that before there was anything, time, space, matter, angels, there was God. God has always been, he always is, and he always will be. More, Genesis 1 says God can bring something out of nothing by merely speaking, his words. God says, let there be light. Boom! And there's light. And God separated the light from the darkness, day and night, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Next day, God separates the skies from the waters below. God says, it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the second day. Then the lands and the seas. God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, day three. Next, God starts filling these realms, starting with the day and the night, the sun, moon, and stars. God says, it is good. And there was morning and there was evening, day four. Then God fills the skies and the sea with fish. And with birds, vice versa, with birds and fish. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And then God created land animals, cattle, creeping things. And God saw that it was good. And we come to the text we just read in Genesis. God suddenly pauses. And he has a conversation with himself. That's because our God is both one and many. And yes, that's just another thing to blow our minds. But the mind-blowing I want us to focus on here is on what God says when he pauses. He has this unique discussion about you and about I, about mankind, before he even creates us. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. Do you see how amazing this is? How significant this is? The significance God is placing on you and on me. God has just created the entire cosmos. Stars that are beyond what we can even imagine in size, whole galaxies. He just created this earth with all these amazing creatures. And now he pauses and he begins to discuss his masterpiece. Mankind. Male and female. Distinct. Made in his image. Unique. What does that mean? It means that you and I are the masterpiece made to reflect our God. Who are you? You are the pinnacle of God's creation. Friends, you're absolutely amazing. That's why the writer of Psalm 8, which call, our call to worship was about. He says, wow, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. Friends, you are fearfully and wonderfully made created in the image of your God. And you may be asking, well, 
So I'm not feeling that. How exactly do I image my creator? I'm glad you asked. Look at what God says next. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing on the earth. God says, have babies and fill the earth with lots more of my image bearers reflecting my glory. The way we imitate image our creator is by procreating. The creator creates, we procreate. Next, God says we're to have dominion. Rule over this earth and all that's in it. Why? Because God is the ruler of all things. And so we're to rule this earth that he set us in. We do that in our labor by caring for the earth, stewarding it. Now, labor will get fleshed out more in chapter 2, as does marriage, which God says this is where two unique persons become one flesh. Think about it. We're imaging our God, reflecting him who is many persons who is also one. Do you see all the ways we reflect God? Do you see how remarkable you are as a human being, privileged above all of creation to reflect the awesome God who's made everything? We need to walk up to one another after the service and just say, wow, Jesse, you're amazing. Jesse doesn't like being put on the spot. That's okay. Wow, Nanette. You are reflecting God's glory. Friends, you are wonderfully made. All right, all right. Now we have issues, right? Actually, Jamie and I are childless. Some of you are not married. Some of us had physical maladies where we can't work, like maybe once could or ever could. Because in Genesis 3, mankind rebelled, and all of our reflective abilities, they got short-circuited to some degree. But Genesis 3 is a secondary truth. We were made as the pinnacle of God's creation, and that is the primary truth we need to keep out in front of us, and I want us to focus on today. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. At the end of six days, God sees his creation now with men and women reflecting him and ruling over it. And for the first time, we hear God says, say, very good. When God steps back and looks at us, his masterpiece, he is smiling. And he continues to smile upon humanity as he declares we are very good. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Joel, that's great, but it just occurred to me, I thought this sermon was supposed to be out resting and Sabbath keeping. Why is Pastor Joel spending so much time talking about who we are? For the same reason, my final words right before the closing benediction are never a command. You never hear me saying to you, now go out, work harder, love better. Leave here and stop sinning. What are my final words to you each and every week right before the benediction? Remember who you are and who you belong to. If you walk out of here knowing that you are a restored humanity, if you walk out of here knowing you're a blood-spot, spirit-filled child of the King, of your Creator, renewed to glorify God, then you're going to walk out of here with the Gospel, which is not a 
grown. Now I got to go out and do all these things and work hard. No, it's a praise God. Because of who I am, I get to do this. I get to do that. I can reflect God in new and powerful ways because of what he has made me. How many remember the ugly duckling who lived miserably because he didn't understand his true identity? He tried all the wrong things, tried to fit in all the wrong places, never even thought to fly south. He gets kicked out of where he was. He's shivering in the wintertime. Miserable story until that one day in the spring when he looks down and sees his reflection and he discovers who he is. What does he say? I'm a swan. I'm a beautiful swan. And he's off into the heavens. Do you know why so many people right now in our culture are so miserable? Most folks don't know who they are. Folks feel like they're ugly ducklings. But in the beginning, we find a God-glorifying givenness that is beautiful, that is glorious. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we have what we call creation ordinances. There's four of them, all which come before the rebellion in Genesis 3. There's the labor ordinance, where we're to work as God worked in the world. There's the procreation ordinance, where we are to fill the earth with image bearers. There's the marriage ordinance, two becoming one flesh. The reason our culture is so confused about marriage, why abortion, why fostering our realities today, why we're polluting our world, why so many don't find any joy in their work, it's because we've forgotten who we are, made to uniquely reflect our God. With that in mind, let us look now at the fourth ordinance, the Sabbath ordinance, the very last thing God does in week one. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God finished his work after six days, and then he rested for one, and he blessed that day and made it holy. Does God get tired? Was God wore out and just needed a break after all this creating of the cosmos? No. Isaiah 40, verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. If God is everlasting, never grows faint or weary, then why did God rest? For us. For you and me. God is infinite, but there are differences. We are finite, which means we have limits. As creatures, we have limits to our space, our time, our power. Limits to our knowledge. Not many Presbyterians maybe know that. <laughs> and being finite, being a creature is not bad. It's, remember what God said? Very good. So God took one day off after six days' work so that we could reflect him in our resting as well. Do you see? Because our purpose on this earth was not to be endless work that we cannot bear, nonstop endless spending of ourselves. That's why when you go to the next book, Exodus, when God frees his people from never-ending slavery 
in Egypt, the first thing he does when they arrive at the holy mountain to worship him, what does he do? He gives them a brand new calendar, the gift of a new calendar. Look at our Exodus 20 passage you'll find on your bulletin. This is what God gives them. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days God made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Notice, God commands them to work six days. They were the Egyptian slave calendar never had a day off, by the way. He commands them to work six days and then to stop on the seventh. And the reason why? Because God labored in creation and established that with a day of rest after six days of work. Notice also, it says, God blessed that day and made it holy. Do you realize the first thing that God ever declares holy? It's not anything from creation. It's the Sabbath day. It's time that God declares holy. The first thing in all the Bible. We've actually been watching Sproul's Holiness of God. We've seen that to be holy means to be separate, to be other, to be sacred. Think about how those utensils that they use in the, in the sanctuary, they were called holy utensils. They're not to be used to fry your eggs or to do anything. No, these were set apart for a holy use, a special use only in service to God. For the Sabbath to be holy means that one day in the week is to be devoted to God. That is separate. That's not filled with all the stuff of this world, but sacred, spent in God's presence. You see, God gave us the Sabbath, not simply to refresh us because we're finite, but also because God wants to spend time with us, because God delights in you, and he wants you to delight in him. It's a day to enjoy being with God. So I want us to be asking ourselves this question this week. What am I doing with this wonderful gift that God has given me? What am I doing with this wonderful gift God has given me? Author A.J. Swoboda, he tells the story of how his 10-year-old self, once he came home from school one day, and he found his grandparents and his mom standing around a table staring at this little piece of paper. He said that moment changed his life and for him and for his family. You see, the night before, his grandfather had gone to the gas station to buy some snacks, and he bought a lottery ticket as well. That night, with Grandma asleep at his side, he turned on the news to hear the numbers. He shook her awake, just in time for her to hear the last numbers read. They won the lottery. They were now millionaires. There would actually be no rest that night. As they tried to wrap their minds around all that this windfall was going to do for them. Swoboda, he, Swoboda, his name's hard to say, Swoboda, he talked about the profound changes his family experienced. Debts, history. College tuition, paid for everyone. Dream vacations were had. But there was a darker side to this story. 
Family members began bickering after a little while, began fighting over the money. Some of them began to stop speaking. Finally, his grandparents, married nearly 50 years, got divorced. Swoboda tells this story to communicate this. He says, more critical than a gift is how we handle the gift. My friends, God has given us this out-of-this-world treasure, the Sabbath. But if we don't know how to use it, if we don't only misuse the gift, but actually we do it to our own hurt, and what could cause us to flourish in the world and live better, it actually makes us sick. How is our wealthy culture, which had so much, using the gift of the Sabbath? Let me give you a few stats. You know that prior to COVID, life expectancy in the United States had already begun to fall? Do you know that nearly half of adult Americans today, 117 million, have chronic health issues? It continues to rise. And doctors, not just the Bible, doctors say, who know the body, one of the key contributing factors is we don't know how to stop. We don't know how to rest giving away my age, but when I was little, most things were actually shut down on Sunday. Anybody remember that? Not anymore. Today, we're either constantly producing, we're workaholics, or we're constantly consuming, nonstop filling ourselves with this world and its pleasures. And it's fueled by a technology that always promises to better connect us, better make our lives easier and better. Ironically, All it does is further chain us to our work, to our family demands. Oh, and all the things in the world that I need to feel responsible about if I don't know about what's going on. Now, I'm no Luddite. I'm not suggesting we go off the grid, okay? What I am suggesting is that instead of becoming well-adjusted to a sick society, we resist and go against the flow. Dead fish flow down with the stream. Live fish, what do they do? And they produce. I think that will come by unwrapping this gift of the Sabbath and learning how to handle it. To work hard six days, rest well one day. Do you know that Winston Churchill lived to be 90 years old? And this guy drank scotch for breakfast and smoke cigars every day. I would argue that his routine of regular rest had a lot to do with his long life. (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. It also, think of all the great work he did. And by the way, we benefited from that. And from what I understand, Churchill was not even a believer from what I've read on him. So let me ask you, as believers in Christ, how much more could we grow spiritually and touch God, really touch God? How much more could we positively impact our community? How much more could we be tightly knit together as a healthy community of faith if we learned how to better use this gift God is holding forth for us? Hebrews tells us we need to make every effort to enter God's Sabbath rest. It won't happen by accident. You have to 
go up against the stream. It's not easy. So what steps can we make to take advantage of the gift to help us flourish? Well, most of you know we're going to be starting a fellowship evening every other Sunday night, starting in mid-September. It's a very small thing that I pray will eventually lead to a Sunday evening service so we can make this day more about God, morning and evening. I hope it also brings weary souls who maybe because their work demands that they can't come on Sunday morning that they can come and find rest. There's also very few Sunday church options. We don't have much competition for Sunday evening service. I hope many of us will take this time, make this time of song, of prayer, of the word, part of our routine insofar as we're able. Or make other efforts on the Sabbath, just beyond the morning. You know, beyond just the morning, just making other efforts during the day to make this a day where we learn to enter God's rest. A brother last week, he said, I was surprised at the end of the conversation, I've invited him to this church before. He's, he's part of a mega church. He really likes that and everything. I have no problem with that. But he just said, Joel, I really, really appreciate how Heart City just promotes the ordinary instead of the extraordinary that all the other evangelical churches that I've been to are doing. He said, that's, that's really awesome. Maybe someday I'd like to experience that. You see, lots of churches are working very, very hard to impact this world, to save souls for Christ. This is a good desire. Praise God for it. Many, a buddy of mine, they're putting up revival tents. All last week they were busy doing that for a big tent revival. They do worship events down in the square, right, with all the bands. I was talking with another brother last week about this and all. Big mercy ministry events, right, where they give away tons of stuff and they tell you, oh, look at all that we did. These efforts, good desires, many of them good. I'm not, not criticizing. Why? They're, they're hoping their neighbors to get saved. They hope to bring revival. I hear that all the time. They're working really hard, and I've been involved in a lot of it. But here's what's hit me. What if all the work we're doing is the problem? Maybe God doesn't bring revival. Or growth from our labors is really, really short-lived. Because if God did bless it, who would get the glory? Men and all our efforts, human efforts. I'm wondering if God is simply waiting for crazy busy people to get out of his way. You know you find the word rest, or varying forms of it, over 500 times in this Bible. Do all these well-intentioned ministry events reveal a God who gives rest to the weary? Maybe. What if God is waiting for a community that stops doing once a week? and starts being limited humans, saying we need to rest, discovering, disconnecting from a crazy busy world for the sake of rest, for the sake of relationships, for the sake of reflection. Maybe a sacred community that began to live that way, healthy, would actually see more produced from their six-day labors. Now, I say this as an amateur, imperfect Sabbath keeper and still trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to figure it out. Three and a half years ago is really when I started this. And actually, Jamie and me went to see one of my favorite living pastors, Zach Eswine. And he wrecked 
crazy busy Joel with Ecclesiastes 10.10. I put it in our bulletin. Ecclesiastes 10.10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Zach then proceeded to give an illustration with an orange, the fruit, an orange. He said, you ever try to slice an orange with a plastic disposable knife? He said, it can be done, but it's really messy and you've got to use a lot of strength. He said, wouldn't it be so much better if you took out a sharp steel knife and... His point was, there is wisdom to rest to letting God sharpen our tool. Instead of trying to saw through life's labors week after week after week. He said, Genesis 1 and 2, give us this wisdom pattern for human flourishing. It goes like this. Work. Rest. Work. Rest. Work. Rest. Work. Rest. Work. Rest, work, rest, 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 work, rest. My wife looked at me and she said something to the effect of, I hope you're taking notes, Joel. It was, I think, February of 2019 that I began to take a day off. It's another reason why I'm still in ministry and thriving. It took me some time to get to this point, and I'm still working on it. Let me explain my biggest problem. Maybe some of you can relate. Why it was so hard for me to stop and rest. From day one, when I became a minister, never once did I lay my head on my pillow and say, Ah, I crushed it in ministry today. No. Either I'm thinking of all the things I failed at, or if I did have a good day, how I could have done this better, or how I need to prepare for the next day. The problem in our circles, and I'm speaking to Reformed circles, is that we are very good at guilt. But we're very weak on the goodness of the original creation. Every week, we confess our sins. And do you notice what we do? We don't only do the sins of commission, we do the sins of omission. We confess the sins we did, and we also confess all the things we failed to do. And we should do that. Because we can live with a crushing guilt about this. But what I think we often do is we confuse sin and finitude. Being finite, creatures with limits. Add to that, I was raised in the rugged individualism of our culture. I know some of us know exactly what I'm talking about. We work really, really hard to get things done. And we don't know how to stop because there's really no end to being done, right? That mindset leads you to one of two places or both. It leads you to burnout or it leads you to self-righteousness. Where you look down on all the people who aren't doing as much as you are. Many of whom annoy us. They spend all day goofing off or staring at their screens. Do you know, I believe that people who stare at their screens for endless hours, that's a product of rugged individualism. You see, the person who feels the phone pulling at them every five minutes or who binge watches Netflix, they may be numbing themselves 
because they see the burnout and the self-righteousness of us and they don't want to go down that path. I don't think it's always laziness. Or they simply see all that you're doing and they see their limits and they don't even know where to start. Which leads them to feeling that they're not needed. And so they numb out. What a wonderful thing to be part of a church plant that has a lot of needs. A lot of needs and small needs. You know what you can do? Come to me. I'm happy to hand you a bucket of paint, a brush, and point you to a wall. I'm happy to ask you to say a prayer for me on Sunday or to pray for this person on Sunday. Somebody could hand out bulletins. Show up a little bit early, hand out bulletins. God wants us to work six days. We are to work. We are to labor. These are good things God's prepared for you. He also wants us to rest. And there's a lot of people who don't even know how to do the six-day thing because they don't know where to start because of the culture they've grown up in. Sebastian Younger, in his book on soldiers who've come back from the war, come back to America, they're trying to fit in, trying to belong, he's got this great line. He says, humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society, I like this, this is good, has perfected the art of making people feel not necessary. I think that's true. That's the problem rugged individuals have created. But we do need you. We do need you. We do you. We need you very much. We all need each other because we're all finite. We're all limited. We're creatures. And God said this is a very good thing. So what I want to close on is work hard, rest well because of who you are and who you belong to. Some of us need to work harder on the six days so we don't have the work week bleed into this day. And when we don't get it done, to maybe go ahead and say, it is finished. Like God did after the sixth day. And then step out in faith that God will give us the rest we need so that we can actually do what we need the following week. That God will equip us. Now I know some of us, and we'll talk about this more next week, some of us are actually in slavery in Egypt, okay? And it doesn't seem possible to escape. It may not be. So cry out this week to the God who hears you in your slavery and answers. And all of us, I want us to all seize opportunities to make more holy moments where we step away from this world. Children, ever say I'm bored? Uh-huh. Boredom is not a thing that requires a quick fix. In fact, it's a moment that you can make holy at least for five minutes. Make a couple minutes, read scripture, memorize a catechism question, or pray for someone. Pray for me. Pray for me. I need it. Parents, if they do come and say, I'm bored this afternoon, say, great, let's open our Bible and listen to God before we play a game. That will benefit you far more than the entertainment. Not only your soul, but your whole person. Your whole person. I want us to all make a practice of unwrapping the gift and learning how to use it. And my final point is this requires humility. Do you realize that humility was not something required after the fall? 
but was a pre-fall condition? God created us in bodies that were limited and said, very good. That means God not only loves you in your body, in your limitedness, God likes you. You ever hear anybody say that? God really likes you. Did you hear that? God looks at your limited body, whatever shape, whatever it looks like, and says, I really like you, just how I created you. God loves us short and tall, fast and slow, stout and skinny. He delights in us, in our limited bodies, that we should celebrate even as they require us to humility. Humbly dependent was how God created us from the beginning. Think about it. God created us to live needing him, needing one another, and needing this earth. Dependent creatures in order to survive and to thrive. And God said, this is a very good thing. Maybe you're saying, Joel, how can I truly be sure that God likes me and my body? I look at myself and I'm not seeing it. We're going to sing in just a moment. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what or who thou art. What is the joy of knowing who Jesus is? In part, it's the joy of taking in that the Son of God is actually more like you than he is different or as much. John's Gospel also begins in the beginning. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you see? God stamped his divine yes, his divine approval on our finite bodies as the incarnate Son came. And Jesus came to die on the cross to deal with our Genesis 3 problem. And he was raised from the dead to make us whole again. A new resurrection body awaits all who believe. A glorious body that in heaven will be very, very good. Even as it still has its limits. Which will never be a bad thing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to stop and pause and give you our thanks and praise for all you have done for us. We thank you that we don't have to be self-created because you have made us so glorious that why would we ever want to be? I pray that you'll open our eyes to see your great love and affection for us as finite creatures needing you. And that in fact, as we come to you, you're pleased to answer us as best fits us. I pray this week we will work hard. I pray we'll set ourselves up well for this next Sabbath to come, should it come. But I just want to pray, Lord, that you'll send the Spirit of your Son into our hearts that this day we might flow against the stream, swim hard in order to discover the rest you want us to even enter into the rest of this day, which we want to thank you for this Sabbath day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.